lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish. Cavalieri, I think, third in front of Savonet. Saturday, October the 1st, we'll see the running of the Tab Epsom, named after the famous English racecourse, which is home to the Derby. The Epsom was first run in 1865 and was won by Dundee, ridden by a tiny apprentice called Jim McHugh, grandfather of former Sydney bookmaker Bruce McHugh. Very few three-year-olds have run in the Epsom because of the immaturity factor, and only two of that age group have won the historic mile. The first was S. Spiegel in 1884. The next and last was No Home in 1959, and there is some kind of a horse. Despite living in the shadow of his illustrious brother Todman, No Home won 10 races in Australia, including the Epsom, in very fast time. Three weeks later, he won the Cox Plate in race record time, with a second in the Caulfield Guineas, sandwiched in between. He later became a top sire in America. The Epsom riding record belongs to Donald Nicholson, who won five consecutive Epsoms in the late 19th century before losing his life in a 16-horse fall in the 1885 Caulfield Cup. With seven Epsom winners each, Tommy Smith and Gay Waterhouse share the training record. There's so much trivia attached to Epsom history, it's hard to know where to begin. When Stan Aitken arrived at Ararat Racecourse on November the 16th, 2003, with a book of four rides, he had no way of knowing this was to be his final day as a professional jockey. He was a fit and healthy 50-year-old, and the prospect of retirement wasn't on the agenda. His first ride of the day ran second. The next ran down the course. The third finished third. His last engagement was on the well-fancied Club Red for Robert Smurden in the Ararat Gull Cup. He gave the horse every chance before finishing out of a place and another day at the office came to a close. Stan was frustrated that his opportunities had been diminishing over a period of time and it had been a full month since his previous win on Coniston Way at Avoca. He was still riding his share of track work at Ballarat, but with fewer race rides, his weight was getting harder to control. When a ride or two came his way, he found himself in the sweat box for long periods of time. With a minimum of fuss, a very fine jockey quietly slipped away from the only life he'd ever known, a career that had taken him to racing's biggest stage and brought him victory in races like the W.S. Cox Plate and the Blue Diamond Stakes. Stan will turn 70 early next year. He lives in Ballarat and retired only recently from a long-time role as a groundsman at the Ballarat Racecourse. I've had several requests to arrange a podcast with a man who rode against the very best of his generation and more than held his own. Here he is. Stan Aitken, great to catch up. Good to talk with you, John. Well, mate, it's hard to believe 19 years have passed since that final day at Ararat. 
You didn't want to retire. Racing retired you. Yes, that's right. I think I think that's the case with most jockeys, unfortunately. Uh, most of them don't want to retire, but uh, they, they end up having to because uh, most times they can't make a living out of it. You found yourself spending hours in the sauna and eating very little for a couple of ordinary rides at a provincial or country meeting. It just wasn't worth it. The, the whole thing about keeping your weight down, or the majority of it, is all is, is to do with your mental approach. And if your mental approach is not positive, it's a very, very hard thing to do. And it's very hard to have that if uh, if, if you're not competing anywhere near as much as you used to, mm. and particularly if you're not winning. Mm. You stayed in the racing industry and you went to work for the Ballarat Turf Club. You started off as a track work supervisor and then you moved on to the ground staff. Terrific track, Stan, the Ballarat course. It's certainly among Australia's top regional tracks. John, one of my uh, uh, good memories uh, of racing uh, was that I was able to work uh, as a groundsman at the Ballarat track, and see the development that's been there in the last 15 years. Mm. It's been just absolutely amazing, and it was great to be a part of that. I wonder how many people realise that Stan Aitken is a native Tasmanian, born and reared in a lovely little town called Penguin on the northwest coast between Burnie and Ulverston. You were one of six born to Wally and Nancy Aiken, and you grew up on the family farm. What sort of farm was it? It was a mixed farm, John. Um, there, there were only small farms back then, but it consisted of uh, some cropping, um, cows, um, sheep. Uh, it, 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 most of the farms along the northwest coast at that time were mixed farms. And, mm. uh, and ours, ours was that. We should point out there wasn't a hint of racing anywhere in your background. No, no. I had an uncle who, uh, who had a, a couple of trotters. Um, but as far as gallopers go, no, no. There was, there was uh, my, mm. my, my, my family, my descendants, they were all farmers. Most jockeys learn to ride on ponies or show jumpers or eventers. You learn to ride on a draft horse with a very appropriate name. <laughs> Old Farmer was his name, and yeah. uh, we used to use him, or well, Dad and his brothers used to use him to scarify the spuds. And uh, then the tractor came along and Farmer ended up uh, not getting used. Mm. Uh, so I used to put the bridle uh, with the blinkers and a a rope for the reins on him, and I used to walk him yeah. all over the farm, uh, and uh, that, that's that, that's that's where I learned. Yeah, that's how I started. You told me a story the other day, which, as an old trotting man, I can relate to. You've never forgotten the creaking of the leather collar that the old draft horse wore. It stayed with you, hasn't it, all these years? Never forgot it. It's a great sound, a great sound, and the smell of the sweat. Uh, when I was five or six, 
when when farmer used to uh, scarify the spuds, I, my uncle and my dad used to put me on the back mm. and walk me. I'd walk over the paddocks. I'd lead old farmer, and I'd hang on to the the, the, the prongs on the on the collar, mm. and the the collar used to creak each step. The collar would creak, <laughs> uh, and it, it just uh, and, and it, well, I think it's like uh, a, a lot of old memories regarding harness. That's one of the things. Yeah. Remember it, the, the creaking of the leather of the harness. Mm. You must have graduated to faster horses before making up your mind to become a jockey. What did you do after farmer? Me dad, or two of his brothers, got a got a, an ex trotting mare. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got her to, to get her in foal, uh, and uh, they, they decided they'd breed a foal from her. And anyway, I I, I used to ride her. Her name was Peggy Alto, mm. and I used to ride Peg everywhere. Uh, I used to ride a bareback, and I think back and I think, oh, gee, I, I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I should have been hurt countless times. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I wasn't. And then uh, one of my uncles gave me an ex-military uh, saddle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, uh, then that was it. Then, then I then then I felt like I could go anywhere and hold pig. <laughs> well, a family friend happened to know a Victorian trainer who was looking for an apprentice. So off went little Stan to the mainland at 13 years of age. Who was the trainer and where was he situated? It was Jack Whitelaw. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was up at Vanilla. Yep. Uh, Jack Jack was a retired bank manager uh, who used to ride work uh, for Basil Conigan. Mm. And uh, Geoffrey Bamford was apprentice to Whitelaw and he was on loan to Basil. Uh, and that made uh, that's how I got the opening to uh, uh, to get in there. After about a year, you got a transfer to a respected Caulfield trainer called Norm Crichton, who'd been a top class jockey himself, and then went on to become a very good trainer. You spent four years with Norm. We should point out, Stan, uh, his name was up in lights uh, in his day as a jockey. He won a Victoria Derby on Skipton. He couldn't make the weight in the Melbourne Cup and Billy Cook was the lucky jockey uh, to win that cup. Skipton was a three-year-old, by the way. And Crichton also rode Ori Star the day he won down the straight six in remarkable time. Well, he held that record uh, right up until uh, uh, we went metric. Mm. Uh, and he also rode a horse called Aimable who uh, held the uh, the seven furlong record as well. Oh, he was, yeah. Well, it was Norm who provided you with your first race ride, if if I'm correct with this, uh, on a horse called Lots of Time, who was destined to become a champion hurdler. I think he won nine consecutive races at one stage over the hurdles, didn't he? He did, he did. He was my first ride. Uh, I rode him at Yarra Glen. Uh, and, and as I say, I, not too many people can say that their first ride was on a champion. Mm. Uh, and not knowing, of course, at the time, he uh, he, he turned out to be, uh, well, until Robert Smurden's horse broke the record, he held that record right up until then. Mm. He wasn't the most pleasant horse in the world, was he? Lots of time? No, no. He was uh, George Eccles used to look after him because George's girlfriend, Sally Wood, uh, and a, a, a and a, a media uh, uh, entertainment fellow called Jimmy Hannon mm. uh, 
that they owned lots of time, and George used to look after him. Mm. Uh, and he was, he was what made him such a good hurdler was he was just a magnificent looking animal. Mm. Uh, he could run. He he'd won a thousand meter race. Beautiful big butt, uh, dead set mongrel to, mm. to 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 work with. Uh, and I, I wasn't allowed. Me and the other there was another kid there with me. We weren't allowed to go near him. Oh, because uh, George reckoned that uh, he'd hurt us, and he would. He'd bite, he'd jump on you. Uh, he was a real arrogant, big, uh, magnificent-looking horse. It was also Norm Crichton who supplied your first winner, and uh, I think that was at the track you just mentioned, Yarra Glen. Swindler. Swindler it was. Swindler, mm-hmm. a fellow called Harold Hall who owned uh, Bellahoman Park, Stud, mm-hmm. uh, owned Swindler and leased him to Norm's wife, uh, June. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, yeah, he, he, he was my first winner. What do you remember of the race? He led. Mm. He led and I just sat and I held him as hard as I could. Uh, and he, he oh, I think he might have been a length and a half, two lengths in front. Mm. And I just sat and held him as hard as I could. Mm. and then started to kicking him along in the straight, and he won. Mm. <laughs> Much to your delight. Now, your first oh, yeah. your first city winner was a horse called Treadle at Flemington, but you didn't stop with just one win. Later in the day, you made it a double. Uh, Nam Tier was the name of the second winner, and they both started at 25 to 1. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Treadle beat... Uh, Proud Toff, who Roy rode and Angus trained, mm. and Nam Tier beat uh, Regal Vista, who Jeff Lane rode and uh, Brian Courtney trained. Good heavens. So you've uh, beaten uh, Roy Higgins and Jeff Lane on the occasion of your, your first winning day on the Metropolitan Tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just ironic, ironic that uh, two, two of the, the top trainers uh, ever and two of the the best jockeys ever, uh, and I, I happened to beat them on a on a twenty five to one shot both mm. times. Mm. Well, sadly, Norm Crichton became seriously ill, and he had to wind down his training operation, and a new job had to be found for young Stan Aitken, who was seventeen by this. Now you gained a spot with a man who was destined to become Melbourne's Theo Green. Were you Frank King's first apprentice? Yes, I was. Uh, so Frank Frank trained a half a dozen horses, and uh, yes, I, I was his first apprentice. Tell me the story about Frank's other job, which he had to attend to before he even came to the track to work his horses. Frank used to look after the dairy horses in High Street, Malvern, and then might have been oh, there might have been about thirty of them back then. Uh, the, the, the the milk was delivered by uh, by horse and cart, and Frank's job was to to look after the horses at the dairy. Mm. So he'd go down at first light every morning to uh, to, to 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 clean them out, uh, and then I'd go to the track and I'd muck out a couple of boxes, and then I'd go over and ride work uh, for, uh, uh, for for different trainers, uh, and I was the only apprentice at Caulfield. Mm. that could do this because all the other kids weren't able to ride work mm. for another trainer until their own horses were worked. Mm. 
Um, and Frank had finished doing the dairy horses about uh, half past six, uh, seven o'clock, and then he'd come down to the stables and then we'd take his horses over to the track. We might make two or three trips mm. and uh, I'd ride one and he'd lead one. And the, the, the track was about probably 400 metres from the stables. Mm. And, uh, uh, and then uh, um, Frank would follow up. He'd say, who did you ride work for this morning? And then he would approach those trainers and say, well, uh, my kid's riding the, your horse's work. Yeah, well, when have you got it in? Uh, and they were obligated, and he'd make sure mm. that they put me on when those horses uh, were running. And so I was <laughs> I was uh, 17 years old, mm. and I was working of a morning like, uh, like, like the senior jockeys. Mm. I was able to ride work. For, for any trainer that uh, uh, that asked me to ride their horse. Mm. You tell me Frank King became agitated on one occasion because Jeff Murphy took you off a couple of horses that he felt you should have been riding. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, yeah Frank, Frank, Frank was, a, was an ex-jockey, uh, so he wasn't a big person. And he'd grown up with Jeff when Jeff was foreman for Basil Conningham. Mm. Uh, Frank was, uh, was apprenticed. And anyway, uh, uh, he was apprenticed to a bloke called Ben O'Neill. Anyway, uh, Frank always sort of, uh, you know, sort of wasn't real friendly regarding Jeff. Um, and, and, and Jeff was a bit arrogant uh, as well, uh, 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 but a great trainer. Anyway, uh, I was riding Miss Nero and uh, he wanted Jeff Durier to ride her because Jeff could claim a couple of pound more than me. I'd lost uh, a couple of pound of my claim. Mm. And Frank reckoned because I'd been riding her work and at the time Murphy was in Sydney with, uh, uh, I think it was with Andros. Mm. And uh, so uh, he approached Murphy and next thing he, he tried to throw a couple of punches and missed him because <laughs> Murphy, <laughs> Mur- 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 Murphy stepped back. Uh, and anyway, uh, so he said to me, he said, well, you, I, I was riding work for Murphy, uh, as I said, and he said, well, you won't be riding work for him anymore. So oh, I had rode a couple of lightweights for Angus, and he said, uh, see if you can get into Armanesco's. Mm. And that's how I ended up starting to ride work for Angus. Goodness me. Just before we leave, Frank, uh, you tell me he could be a bit prickly at times, as you've, as you've just explained. He could be stubborn in his views too, couldn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he was he was paranoid about me uh, being a lair. Uh, mm. he, he always, you know, lair apprentices, lair apprentices. Uh, so many of them have ended up uh, uh, down the tube because they just turned into lairs when they won a few races, mm. big-headed. Uh, and when I got my first car, I was 18, uh, he... Didn't want me to get it, but because I was getting a lot more rides, uh, I, I didn't have to worry about getting a ride to the races if I had my own car. So anyway, he said, okay, all right, get a car. Mm. He said, but you won't be using it outside when you go to the races. Mm. He said, you won't be leerizing around town uh, in it. Anyway, he, and I couldn't. I would, He wouldn't let me. I, I'd, I'd drive the car to the races and mm. drive the car home, and that was it. I couldn't go up the street or anything like that unless I asked him. Mm. and had a good reason why I had to take the car. 
Goodness me. Yeah, different era. You were not the only successful apprentice to come under Frank King's wing, were you? He had some great riders. He did. He had well, Darren Gorsey, of course, comes comes to mind uh, straight away, um, and then and, and, and Malcolm Pay, mm. um, David Taggart. You know, he's he had uh, he he had some good some good kids come through his stables, uh, and. Uh, They'll, they'll tell you, uh, you know, it, 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 it was the, the same thing that uh, he, he was pretty strict. And he, when I first went with him, I didn't know how to talk to trainers on the phone. Mm. So what he would do, he would ring up a trainer and pretend he was me to ask for the ride on the horse, mm. and he pretend he was me. Mm. So that I, that was how I learned how to talk to trainers to ask for the rides on the phone. This is how this is how thorough the bloke was. Mm. Dale Short was another good apprentice uh, to come under his care. Well, Dale's father was the milkman at Penguin, mm. and because uh, Spike was 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 only a little fella, he had his own pony. Uh, he he uh, he, you know, so he he's, he, he would want to be a jockey, and naturally enough, uh, he used to come over on the school holidays to stay at Frank's. Uh, and that's how uh, that's how Spike started. At the risk of embarrassing you, I've got to say that uh, you were indeed a brilliant apprentice, as evidenced by the fact that you won two Melbourne Apprentices Premierships. I think you won the second one without the benefit of a claim. I, I was lucky. I, I was riding Parangas. I ended up, uh, Frankie Ray's was... Pretty well tied up with uh, with Ray Hutchins at the time and couldn't ride uh, the work uh, that Angus would like, so I was able to, to ride more work and therefore I, eventually I, I I got more of Frank's rides uh, and also too I, I was riding some of Bart's, so you know it, it, it was, they were the two best trainers in Melbourne um, and it, it sort of. I was lucky. It was it was sort of it was no big deal, you know. I sort of I'd jump out, and uh, you, you you jump out with the idea to be in the first half a dozen, and if you can't, well then you work it out from there. Um, and I Frank used to push me and push me and push me to pick the three or four best jockeys in each race, mm. so that regardless of where I was running, look. For one of them to follow, mm. and that's what I used to do. So uh, a lot of times, I never had to really do much thinking. I just had to follow them, mm. uh, and 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 then you start to learn uh, that, that if there's nobody around, uh, well, then you do what you would do if uh, if you're following one of the good jockeys. So so one thing led to another, and possibly one of the greatest problems. In my career was that it all came too easy. Yeah, two apprentices premierships uh, in Melbourne at such an early age. Uh, you certainly made it look easy at that stage of your career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, um, uh, it, it sort of, it, 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 yeah. It was only it was only a few years that I was sort of competing at the top level, but it was such a big part of my life. Mm. Um, 
and I was just uh, so lucky to, to, to I mean, there, there, there's good riders around now. I suppose if you if you're apprentice now, you mm. you've got plenty of good riders such as Damien Oliver and Craig Williams, you know, to 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 follow. But um, uh, you know, there there seem to be more a bigger variety of top jockeys back then than there is now. You know. Mm. In the spring of 1973, your career took a massive leap forward when Bart Cummings booked you for his up-and-coming three-year-old Taj Rossi in the W.S. Cox Plate. He'd had five runs leading into that race. He'd won the Ascot Vale. He'd won the Mooney Valley Stakes. He had only 49.5 in the Cox Plate. I hope Bart gave you plenty of notice. <laughs> and, uh, I... <laughs> I, I, I was able to ride that weight reasonably comfortably. Mm. Um, uh, so, yeah, I was able to, 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 to you know, it didn't take a, a, a great effort to, to ride that weight. Um, so I, I was, my weight was still all right then. Mm. There were 12 runners in that Cox Plate stand. You got back a bit? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 um, I, I got back. Uh, and you know the, the the big thing in my mind in the first four hundred was to to get near the fence, which is that, that was the way everybody used to ride. To, to you know that was the shortest way home, mm. and to get him to relax because he was a great big strong horse. To get him to relax, and then uh, from the eight hundred meter mark, sort of work out. Um, where I was going to, to, or how I was going to be able to go forward. Uh, and um, each time a, an opening came, the horse, when, when you're on good horses, of course, he was able to, to take that spot. And it, it eventually worked through that uh, as I straightened up, I sort of came to the outside of uh, Swell Time, who she'd won the Caulfield Cup, and Brian Andrews was riding her. and. Mm. We went to the line together and uh, and Taj Rossi won. From the Caulfield Cup winning mare, swell time. And what a immense kick along for a young jockey. You would have been, what, 20 at that time? Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget, there was a bloke called Chris Ford. Mm. He used to manage the swabbing of the horses and everything like that and he was always there when they came back into the winner's uh, stalls to make sure that everybody was in the right stall and there was no dramas and the horses were not getting hurt. Mm. Anyway, I'll never forget, uh, as I've walked back to the stalls and I'm getting off, he's come to, to, to stand beside the horse in case there was anything needed and he said, you're right now, you're right now, you're on your way now, you're Diddy, on your way. Diddy. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've never forgot it, never forgot it. Well, Bart had no hesitation in backing Taj Rossi up one week later in the Victoria Derby. Roy Higgins replaced you in the Blue Riband, but then he did so well after winning the Derby that Bart decided to back him up for the third consecutive week in the George Adams Mile. He had only 51, far too light for Roy, and S. Aitken was back on board, and he wins again from two great mares, Mill Fleur and Toll Treese. Mate, he was some sort of a horse, wasn't he? It was amazing. You know, you sort of, uh, you, 
when you think back on it and think what he did, an amazing training effort uh, to come from the mile and a half back to a mile. And these, there, there wasn't just mill flurs and toll trees, Zambari. Mm. This was a, a race with some really good milers in it. Yeah. And, and he was coming back, uh, uh, still as a three-year-old, back from a, from a mile and a half to take these best mile handicappers on. Mm. And he did, and he beat them. It's amazing. He beat them, you know. I mean, mm. on paper, beforehand, yes, he was one of the chances. But I don't think anybody really believed that he could actually win, but then win as comfortably as he did. Yeah. If I had a... I, 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 I got back in the field and I had a lot of trouble getting through. And eventually I got through and his brilliance in a matter of 50 metres, mm. he'd gone from five lengths off the lead, six lengths off the lead to two lengths in front. Mm. Uh, that's how quickly he, uh, he accelerated. And Bart wanted me to get out and give him as much room as I can. Mm. I couldn't get out. I'd mm. ended up uh, uh, through the course of the race I couldn't get out, so uh, I had to try and find runs through. Mm. But I got no doubt that if he could have got out and I could have rode him the way that Bart wanted me to ride him, he would have won by five lengths. Mm. Now, even though you'd just won the Group 1 for him or a race which is nowadays a Group 1, Bart still queried your tactics, didn't he? It's amazing. You know, I, I come back into the jockey's room and then there's a, the presentation. So, you know, it's, it, 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 you know I, I think, I tend to think this was a bigger thing, what he did, than what he did in the Cox Plate. Mm. Uh, and we'll walk out to, I walk out to the mounting yard and everybody's there and Bart's there and I walk up and stand beside him. Congratulations. Mm. Uh, thanks, Mr Cummings. And he said, why didn't you ride him the way I told you? <laughs> did he? I said, <laughs> I beg your pardon? Yeah. He said, why didn't you ride him the way I told you? Why didn't you get him out and give him room, like I said? Mm, mm. I said, well, I couldn't get out, Mr Cummings. I, could, I couldn't get out. Then mm. he, he just mm, nodded his head and yeah. didn't say any more. That was it. Didn't say <laughs> any more. Stand by there, Stan. We're going to pause to clear a commitment on the podcast. When we come back, we'll talk about a surprise offer that Bart made to you after winning that George Adams on Tars Rossi. Racing New South Wales didn't forget the tab highways and the midways in the latest round of prize money increases. The weekly editions of both races will go from $100,000 to $120,000 as from September the 1st. The tab highways introduced in 2015 have been a runaway winner for racing New South Wales and country participants. Every bit as popular are the midways, introduced as recently as July 2021 and now a primary focus of the smaller metropolitan and provincial stables. How fitting it was that the very first midway was won by Al Bellagio Miss, trained by Greg Hickman, who'd been a prime mover in the creation of the concept. The Tab Highways have created tremendous interest among country owners who were constantly on the lookout for a potential highway horse. 
Bush trainers have something to aim for when they feel they have a progressive horse in the stable and the punters find the Tab Highways great betting mediums. Country owners and trainers had cause for a double celebration when they learned prize money for the Kosciuszko would leap from $1.3 million to $2 million. The highways and the midways and the $2 million Kosciuszko are a major part of the new look of New South Wales racing. You wrote a good number of winners for Bart around this time and he was obviously impressed with your riding and he put pressure on you to come to Flemington and ride more work for the stable. But by this time you were firmly entrenched with Angus Armanasco at Caulfield. That was a big decision for a young jockey. Yeah, uh, I Ron McDonald was Bart's foreman at the time and Ron's father... Cliff, he used to do my gear, Rodney Dawkins's gear, and Roy's gear. Mm. Uh, uh, and Ron used to say to me, uh, I used to say, I, I could come and ride more work for you if you want. And he'd say, no, no, you stay here with Angus. Mm. Don't you leave Angus. And anyway, <laughs> I'd, a couple of times I'd say to him, I, you know, I, I can ride more work. No, no, you stay with Angus. The thing was, Bart, Bart wanted me to ride more work because I was the leading apprentice. Mm. And Bart's idea was, because Bart wanted to be number one, uh, at that time Angus was, mm. but he wanted to be number one, and if he could have the number one senior jockey and the number one apprentice riding for him, well, that was going to be a big plus for him, of course. Uh, but um, Ron McDonald knew well enough that possibly Bart might have been a little bit more fickle regarding uh, me being his number two jockey uh, than what Angus was. Yep. And this this is, I think, the reason why, at the time, he kept saying to me, don't you leave Angus. Don't you leave Angus. And uh, when you think back at how at how, uh, how tough Bart was, uh, I, I can understand why uh, why Ron McDonald was saying that. Mm. Well, you heeded Ron's advice. You stayed with Angus and you had a great time with the master trainer. Now, his skills as a trainer were legendary, Stan. How would you describe the talents of Angus Armanasco? What made him such a great horseman? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, he, he used to sit at his box as they go out on the track, and he'd watch them. He'd watch them. And uh, I, he, he he had a great eye. He had a great eye. Uh, you know, people think, he, you know, he just trained sprinters. I won a mile-and-a-half race for him at Caulfield one day on a horse called Classic Wave. Mm-hmm. And Angus had trained, it might have been a Perth Cup winner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he could train stayers. But the reason he trained was training sprinters was because his main owner was Stanley Wooden, yeah. And Stanley Wooden, of course, owned Star Kingdom, mm. uh, and uh, so so. And Angus got his progeny. So this is why he had the name of being a, a sprinting trainer, which yeah. a lot of people sort of seem to think. Well, uh, you don't have to put a great lot of effort into training a horse to win a thousand meters. Mm. But but it, it, there was it was more than that. It was it was more than that. Uh, Angus. Angus used to be able to do 
and it was one of the things that Robert Smurden even he, he, he even talks about now that that, mm. that other trainers couldn't do. Mm. Trainers would look at Angus's horses working, so they would try and Angus could bring a horse in out of the paddock three weeks and have it in a race and it would win. Yeah. So why couldn't other trainers do it? And they tried. They tried and they couldn't. Mm. They couldn't. You know, at that stage at Caulfield, there was Brian Kurt and Courtney, Meg Elkington, Kelly Chapman. There were some good trainers there. They'd come up from maintain. There were some good trainers there. Mm. And, and, and this was a this was a, a, an art that Angus could do. And it wasn't just that. It was Angus's horses very rarely pulled up blowing. Uh, um, excessively, um, and yet they all looked like they were a little bit above themselves. Mm. Uh, uh, but, but I mean, a horse like Bletchingly, uh, he he never raced as a two-year-old because he cracked both sesamoids yeah. in both in both legs. He cracked his sesamoid in both legs, mm. uh, and. What a, a lot of people didn't know at the time was that mm. uh, his last couple of races, mm. uh, he had a little bit of blood in his nose. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned his name, Stan. Just to uh, alert people to your connection with the great Bletchingly, he raced only five times. He won four. He didn't race at all as a two-year-old, as you mentioned. You rode him in four Victorian races. I think you won two of them. And Ron Quinton rode him in uh, the Galaxy at Randwick, his only start in Sydney. He must have had enormous speed, did he? He was an amazing horse. He was a, he was a, a black, big black horse. He was built like a tank. Uh, and he, he, you know, I've got no doubts that he would have won new markets or Oakley plates. Uh, and his temperament, he was just a magnificent temperament, a beautiful horse to ride. He was a colt. Uh, but he was just like a, an old gelding, mm. uh, and he, he he was Mick Crawford with Angus's foreman used to ride him all his works. But a couple of times I'd I'd, I'd I'd ride him, and I used to think, "Geez, I wish I could ride this horse every morning." Mm. Uh, but um, he he uh, when he got the only time he got beat, he was beaten by Citadel. And Citadel went on and won the Epsom that he, year. He did, yeah. Uh, and and I think Bletchingly, that was when he might have first got a bit of a trickle. Mm. Yeah. Now, Stan, all of the people associated with Bletchingly have long passed on, so we're not going to offend anybody by saying that he was a bleeder. And that's the reason he was retired so early. And you saw evidence of it more than once, didn't you? Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't a bad bleeder. Uh, mm. And this is why he was never. Uh, the, he was never seen uh, back in the horse stalls after the race uh, when they were hosing him down and that. Mm. That was when a couple of trickles came out, uh, and because after he won the Galaxy, it happened again. Yeah. And naturally enough, Angus, being uh, the horseman that he was, said, "Right, uh, Sir Stanley wouldn't wants this horse to be a stallion. Mm. Uh, we won't go again in case it gets worse, mm. and uh, and it can be detected. Mm. Uh, so this is why after the Galaxy, they sent him to start. 
where he became champion Australian sire three times. He got Kingston Town in his first crop. He got horses like Emancipation, Bess Weston. He got golden slipper winners like Canny Lad and Star Watch. He sired 61 stakes winners in all. He had a tremendous influence on the breed in this country. I mean, he's breeding his sprinting races, uh, of course, but, I mean, Kingston Town was a freak, I know, Mm. but uh, I think even Malcolm Johnson will still say that Kingston Town should have won the Melbourne Cup. Uh, And if you take into account, that makes Bletchingley as a stallion even more formidable Mm. uh, to to have... uh, Side a Melbourne Cup winner, you know. Mm. Angus Armanasco died in 2005 at age 92. You've always said that he had an enormous influence on your life and apart from your respect for his obvious talents with horses, you really liked him as a person. I don't think I could ever hear anybody ever say anything bad about Angus Armanesco. Uh, and you know, it, it, it all you know, he's had quite a few good jockeys ride for him, and I think they they all would say what a what a gentleman he was, and how good he was to ride for and work with. Uh, and I just regret, and I think probably apart from Roy, I think most of the other jockeys would have been in the same boat. I regret that I was never ever able to talk with him. Uh, to to. To, to, to talk with him, to, to, to find out sort of uh, more about him, you know. Angus puts you on a very smart filly in the 1973-74 season called Forina, who made her debut at Flemington. Now, he also accepted with Kingston Star in the same race, owned by David Haynes, and it turned out to be a disaster. What happened? Farina was favourite. Um, and uh, uh, Frankie was on Kingston Star, and uh, uh, I jumped out and was running third. Kingston Star was up equal leader, mm. and I'm steadying Farina, and she was so good that when I – it's like driving a V8 car. When I decided to go forward, I was a bit slow in coming out from behind. Yeah so that she got me by surprise and got onto the back of Kingston Star and clipped her heels mm. and knuckled, which she, left me up in the air. She didn't, she, she, didn't fall. she didn't fall. She didn't fall. No. She just knuckled. Mm. And she left me up in the air, and as she came up, I was coming down, and I hit the saddle, and it just catapulted me straight out. Okay. <laughs> So Kingston Star won the race, and I'm riding the state the, the favourite, yeah. stable mate favourite, and I fell off her. <laughs> <laughs> you were unhurt. No, no, yeah, I was, I was unhurt. I was unhurt, you know. Yeah. And, and the thing was, it, it sort of looking back on the replay, it, it it was sort of, and I've seen other jockeys do it, it. It sort of when I hit the saddle, it sort of catapulted me up, so it nearly turned me upside down mm. uh, out of the saddle, you know. Mm. Well, you were more than compensated in February of 1974 when you and Forina won the fourth running of the Blue Diamond Stakes. 
She was a grey, wasn't she, Stan? I think she was by a horse called Vibrant. Yeah, she was out of a, a, a mare called Tobelina. Mm. And she had a brother, Tobermory, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, she, 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 she was a great and, – and I think – I'm just trying to think. There was another one that was trained at Geelong uh, later on. Out of the same mare. Out of the same mare, yeah. Mm. yeah. What are your memories of that blue diamond? She, she, she was a speed horse and she jumped and she led. Uh, she, she, she just sort of sat in front uh, and, and sort of raided her in front and uh, straightened up. And when I give her a kick, she responded uh, and, uh, and won. Mm. Another group won. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, uh, yeah, it, it just, yeah, yeah, it, um, They're great, it was, great memories. It, it was, it, it was, I mean, uh, the, the Blue Diamond then, it had only just been run a couple of times, mm. um, uh, Angus had won it, uh, I think he, he won the first one with, with, it might have been with Tolerance. Tolerance won the first one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so, you know, so, uh, so you know, it had only been run a couple of times, so it it, it, it was it was still the top two year old race, mm. uh, but nowhere near like it developed into being later as the no. uh, as the Victorian uh, equivalent of the Golden Slipper, you know. Absolutely. Well, Angus decided to bring that filly to Sydney for the Golden Slipper, and this was one of your very rare trips to Sydney. Before we look at the Slipper of that year. Let's highlight the fact that a surprise winner came your way in the Todman Stakes. Bob Hoisted was in Sydney with a flashy-looking horse called Scamander, and he needed a jockey. How did that happen? He just—I uh, was there, and uh, and I—I I got the ride on Scamander. Mm. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 over the years, over the few years. Uh, I, I'd rode a couple of horses for Bob, but he he had his uh, he, his jockeys because uh, he was down at Mentone, mm. uh, and uh, um, I happened to get the the ride on Commander, um, and uh, and he won. Yep, in the Todman Stakes, and what a flashy looking horse he was! He had white feet, three or four white feet, and a big baldy face. He was he was. He was a bit like a roan. He had mm. he had white flecks through 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 him through 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 his uh, particularly around his hips, his, his, his hips and his, his rump. Uh, yeah, he, he was he, he he was he was the sort of horse that you just you couldn't take your eyes off because mm. because of his colour and his markings. Mm. We've heard many cases over the years of Victorian two-year-olds getting lost in the clockwise direction at Rose Hill, and Forena was one of them. She was absolutely hopeless, wasn't she, going the other way? Tough ride. She was. She was. I mean, uh, uh, she, 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 she had a very hard mouth anyway uh, because, because she was such a, a, a runner. She, she was one of those horses that wanted to go from – from from uh, uh, first gear to top gear every time you give her a squeeze, mm. uh, and uh, and she she had a very hard mouth, and uh, she 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 didn't have to put much effort 
into it to, to feel like she was really dead. And she, she was lying. She was lying. And looking back on it now, generally, when horses race like that, it means they're sore somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think that must have been the case with her. Mm. Uh, she laid and then, then, then she, she was sent to the stud because Angus liked to send his fillies to the stud uh, as well as, well, I suppose, as well as his colts mm. at an early stage. And I think that was part of the or big part of the reason why he had such success mm. breeding with his uh, stallions and with his uh, fillies. Yeah, but anyway, he, 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 she went to the stud and, and I, I never ever, because, because he, you know, he, he, he never made a, there was nothing ever public about her, whether she was sore or not, or anything like that. No. Uh, but I think back now, I, I think there must have been something there that was worrying. Yeah. By the way, Hearts Hill won that slipper for Tommy Smith and Kevin Langby. Now, Stan, in the late 1970s, you had a few rides on a very smart cult called Caraman, who was gunmetal grey in colour. He was trained by Brian Ralph. He was owned by Sir Maurice Nathan who'd been Lord Mayor of Melbourne in an earlier life. You won the Queensland Sires Produce on Caraman in the days before it got a group ranking. You liked this horse a lot. I did. I did. Uh, I used to ride. I never used to ride him all the time. There was a, a girl that used to ride, worked for Brian Ralph, called Kerry Denny. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, she married a, a jockey called Ian Denny. But, but, but Kerry, Kerry used to ride work mainly ride caraman work. And Angus, getting back to his eye, he used to say, gee, I like that horse. Gee, I like that horse. He'd watch him going out onto the track and then he'd watch him coming back in onto the track. And he was a very cheeky horse, very playful. And Angus used to say, gee, I like that horse. Gee, I like that horse. Anyway, he won first up at uh, Sandown at 25 to 1. And uh, Sir Morris owned him and Sir Morris owned probably half a dozen horses that – that uh, Brian had, and mm. uh, he, he, Sir Morris would never remember me, but he owned horses at uh, 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 Norm Crichton's when I was at Crichton's. Mm. He had he, he had a big swayback horse called Monmouth. Yeah, but uh, but he, he, and he he stood out because he was the Lord Mayor of Melbourne then, mm. and he used to come down to the stables to see his horse in a Rolls Royce. Mm. Uh, so anyway, I ended up riding Caraman who. Uh, who's the Morris owned. Yep, and you won a decent race on him at Eagle Farm. Now, very late in your career, you hit the headlines again on a cult called Spargo, trained by Robert Smurden. You won two two-year-old races on him at Wangaratta and at Morfordville, and then he had a little let-up. He came back as a three-year-old, and before we talk about that prep, tell me about the horse, Stan. You were on him. Really, because nobody else wanted to ride him. He was a nightmare, wasn't he? He was. He was. He, 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 he would buck. Uh, he would whip. Uh, and he would rear. And when he used to rear, he wouldn't just rear up. He would go straight up. Oh, dear. And look mm. like at any time he was going to fall over backwards. Uh, he would sort of stand straight up. And only Colts can do it. Uh, straight up. Uh, and... You, you would have to be hanging on for your life, otherwise you'd slide straight off the back of him. Mm. Uh, and anyway, he, he, was, he was like this. This, this was his, uh, his temperament. Uh, and uh, he had his first start at Mooney Valley and I got him led to the barriers and 
from the time I got on the mountain yard until the time I got off him, I didn't relax. <laughs> Even though he was led by yeah. the, the clerk of the course, yeah. I still he was that good that he still could have dropped me, even though the clerk of the course was holding him. Oh, dear. And when he jumped out in the race, I was, from the time he went past the post to pulling up, there was always that chance that he was going to drop and whip. Yeah, dear. Uh, and so, so this, this was this was Caraman. Yeah. Well, he ran second to Sudurka first oh, up. Sorry, not, sorry not, not Caraman. This was Spargo. Spargo, that's right. Yep. Uh, well, he ran second first up to Sudurka. Then he ran 13th on a heavy track at Sandown. And then this is the one we remember so well. Robert Smurden decided to have a throw at the stumps in the Group 2 Ascot Vale Stakes. Listen to the opposition. Testa Rossa, who'd won seven races, including the Magic Millions. Reduce Choice, who'd won three straight including the Blue Diamond, and Fapio's son, who had very strong form coming into the race. You were quoted at $31. In your heart, did you give him any hope of beating horses like that? Not really. Uh, to be honest, not really. But, but if I could have been within a couple of lengths of them, I reckon... Uh, he could have finished reasonably close to them. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, that's what happened. I, 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 I was running uh, behind, third, fourth behind them, and I went forward and he, he went up to them and they, the jocks went for, uh, for, for their horses. Mm. I went for mine. And he went past them. And <laughs> he, he, he beat them by about a length and a half. Uh, it was big news. Everybody saying Aiken's back. Uh, it was, yeah. It, <laughs> it, 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 and, you know, they, 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 they were looking for reasons why yeah. uh, the other two horses uh, didn't win. Yeah. But there was no reason. There, there was, they, they couldn't blame the track. No. They couldn't blame the barriers. Uh, the fact of the matter was that he beat them on their merits that day. On the day. Oh, he had a lot of ability. I mean, it was just his awful temperament, his awful attitude, and the uncertainty and the unpredictability of the horse. No wonder well, no wonder, nobody wanted to ride him, Stan. <laughs> he, you know, he, he was a great looker. He was a great looker. Mm. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, he... he uh, and he, he, he had leg problems. Uh, the, the, mm. the, the reason he never went on, it wasn't because that was a fluke, mm. uh, that, 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 that he, he never, ever could produce a game because it was just a fluke. He yeah. couldn't produce it again because he had leg problems. Yep. You and your first wife, Judy, had two girls, Renee and Paige. Tragically, you lost Renee to a brain tumour some years ago and belated sympathies on a dreadful loss, Stan. Thanks, uh, John. You and your second wife, Laurel, are the parents of Tyler Donaldson Aitken, who has developed a successful horse-breaking and pre-training operation at a place called Coggles Creek near Ballarat. His skills are highly regarded and the business is up and running. He works very hard. Uh, 
he works very hard. He's still seven days a week, but he's he's got a good temperament, and he likes the horses. He likes the horses, and he's he's never satisfied that everything that he's done has been uh, as good as he could do. He's always looking to improve. And I think this is a great asset for him to have. Wonderful attitude, and it'll take him a long way too. What was your reaction when Tyler told you a few months ago that he was going to Mongolia to compete in the world's longest horse race, the Mongol Derby, over 1,000 kilometres of pretty rough terrain on the Mongolian steppe? And... He wasn't disgraced either. He finished sixth of 46 and he was in awe of the experience. As he indicated, he might do it again. I said to him, I said, will you do it again? You'd have a better idea than what, what, what ponies to select uh, when, when, when you're choosing your horses. He said, well, he said, no, he said, I've done it now. He said, I've done it now. He said, uh, no, probably not. Um, and and the, the stupid part was, uh, one of one of my friends said to me, "Oh, Tyler's on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. He's trying to raise money to uh, to go to Mongolia." Mm. <laughs> I said, oh, "I said, I said it'd be that'd be a scam. It'd be a scam. I said to him, I said, well, it might have been a couple of days later. I said, have you seen this scam that's on uh, 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 that's on the phone?" about you looking for to raise money to go to Mongolia. He said, I am going to Mongolia. <laughs> and that, that, was, that, that, that was the first I'd heard of it. Mm. And I said, well, well, what's the raising money for? He said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm not raising money for me. He said, you've got to nominate a charity. So he said, because uh, I, I nominated uh, a, a charity that um, – that, that involves treating uh, a brain tumour uh, uh, that, uh, that just, uh, uh, because of what Renee had. He said, so that's what that's about. He said, but, it, but he said, I, I am going to Mongolia. Well, you can imagine what I thought, what, what's he going to Mongolia for? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know. And he did a very good job at his first attempt and uh, he looks as certain he'd have another crack at it. You rode in a wonderful era against some wonderful jockeys. You mentioned a couple to me when we chatted on the phone last week. Yeah, um, I I was lucky that I was riding competitively when Roy rode the, 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 the 12 winners at, uh, at Flemington over that spring carnival. That, that, that was, I mean, to watch from the stand was something that you would never forget. But to be able to actually see it in a race, riding in a race with him, was just, just unbelievable, you know. And he was, he was probably as fit and as, uh, as alert and well in himself as he's ever been in his life as a jockey. Uh, and he was, he was like a champion racehorse that gets at that stage. He was virtually unbeatable. 
uh, and I was able to say that I was competing against him. And the other name uh, that you brought up in our phone conversation was the late, great Kevin Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. He, he When I was up at Jack Whitelaw's at Benalla when I first came over here, he had a, there was a horse called Wentworth that he was getting, uh, it had both both tenders and he was getting it to, to, to come back. And Kevin came up to ride at work to see how it was going. He must have uh, known the owner. And I, as you can imagine, I was about six stone and everything I got on, I couldn't hold and was always a big <laughs> drama with me. And I'll never forget the truest things that, one of the truest things that anybody could ever say to me, particularly regarding riding horses. He said to me, he was trotting along beside me down this track that we were going down. It was just a road. And he said, son, son, he said, use your voice. He said, use your voice. Mm. He said, it'll save you back every time. Mm. And I never forgot it. And it's one of the first things I tell any kid that I'm talking to uh, that's uh, that, that wants to be an apprentice jockey. Talk to them. The first thing I tell them. Mm. The first thing they hear when they see a human being is the human being's voice. Mm. And it's generally in a soothing manner. And it's like any animal, whether it's cows, dogs, uh, where you use your voice in the right uh, tone, you can get that animal to nearly do anything. Mm. Yeah, great advice, Stan. You've only got to watch a, a dog wag his tail when you talk to him nicely, haven't you? Oh, it's, it's, I mean, you don't, you, well, it, it, can, it happens with humans too. You don't have to physically, uh, uh, you don't have to physically harm a dog to get it to do what you want it to do. If you use your voice properly, mm. you can use your voice and you can get that dog to absolutely lie on the ground in agony mm. just purely by how you use your voice. Yep. And naturally enough, of course, too, you've got to use your eyes. Mm. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but with horses, because you're only – and you don't have to yell at them. You know, a, a, lot of, a lot of riders make the mistake of yelling at their horses when the horse does something wrong, you know, when, it, when, when, it, when, when they're trying to – if the horse is starting to get upset about something – uh, and they say, instead of saying, whoa, 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 they start yelling, whoa, whoa, whoa. And mm. what it does, it makes the horse worse. Mm. But, but you, be, when you're riding them, their hearing is that much better than ours anyway, and you're only six inches away from their ears. Mm. So you, 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 you don't have to you, raise your voice to be able to talk to them, mm. and you can talk to them and nobody else knows that you're doing it or can hear you. Uh, and uh, so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of kids don't do it or, or, or find it hard to get into the habit of doing it because they're sort of embarrassed that other people might hear them yeah. and sort of laugh at them, you know. Mm. Well, Stan Aitken, I've enjoyed our chat. Uh, you left an indelible mark among the best jockeys of your generation and you've been on my short list for quite a long time now and it took a couple of emails from regular listeners to spur me into action, and I am so pleased we made contact, and I'm absolutely delighted that you've been able to join me on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. 
great to chat, Stan. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, John. This, is, this has been a real high for me. Thank you very much. Saturday, October the 1st, we'll see the running of the Tab Epsom, named after the famous English racecourse, which is home to the Derby. The Epsom was first run in 1865 and was won by Dundee, ridden by a tiny apprentice called Jim McHugh, grandfather of former Sydney bookmaker Bruce McHugh. Very few three-year-olds have run in the Epsom because of the immaturity factor, and only two of that age group have won the historic mile. The first was S. Spiegel in 1884. The next and last was No Home in 1959, and there is some kind of a horse. Despite living in the shadow of his illustrious brother Todman, No Home won 10 races in Australia, including the Epsom, in very fast time. Three weeks later, he won the Cox Plate in race record time, with a second in the Caulfield Guineas, sandwiched in between. He later became a top sire in America. The Epsom riding record belongs to Donald Nicholson, who won five consecutive Epsoms in the late 19th century before losing his life in a 16-horse fall in the 1885 Caulfield Cup. With seven Epsom winners each, Tommy Smith and Gay Waterhouse share the training record. There's so much trivia attached to Epsom history, it's hard to know where to begin.